was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Jill O'Hara. Jill O'Hara was Tony-nominated for her performance as Fran Kubelik in the original 1969 production of Promises, Promises. She also appeared in the original production of Hair Off-Broadway and in George M. On tour, she starred in Finishing Touches and Two Gentlemen of Verona, and her many regional credits include The Last of the Red Hot Lovers opposite Sid Caesar, Broadway with Gilda Radner, Mary Mary with Betsy Palmer, and the Jack Cole-directed Royal Flush. On screen, she appeared in The Sidelong Glances of a Pigeon Kicker, and her successful solo albums Jill O'Hara and Alone together can be heard on Spotify. So now, without further ado, the great Jill O'Hara. And so I'd love to start by asking you um, how you first got interested in theater. Well, um, my mother had a children's theater when I was growing up. So that was the start of it, really. Um, And of course, I wanted to be a ballerina when I was about six. So (laughs) um, that's that was really the start of it. Yes. Yes. And so how did wanting to be a ballerina change into (laughs) wanting to be a theater performer? Uh, Well, actually, I studied ballet and I was um, in the regional ballet of Pennsylvania, which was quite an honor because um, there were only two dancers chosen out of all the applicants from the whole state of Pennsylvania. And Jacques D'Amboise was... um, the one who made the decision who came and auditioned us and it it went on for hours and hours and hours and i was i think 14 or 15 then and i was one of the two that was accepted um which was very nice but i have a letter i came across it recently and i have to find it again because i thought it was so funny um the letter was sent and i had never seen it but i had heard that they didn't like the fact that i sat down in between combinations well it was just exhausting it was five straight hours and so they were on with the compliments and then the next paragraph was you never in big capital letters never ever sit down in a class etc and you know scathing scathing and then the next sentence was you have been accepted (laughs) (laughs) and then from there um, do are you do you know what Chautauqua Institution is in upstate New York? I don't. I don't. Um, it's wonderful. It's it's been there I, maybe since the 1930s. It's on Lake Chautauqua and it's a cultural center and uh, they have an opera company, etc. So the ballet company, the uh, Pennsylvania Regional Ballet Company, went to Chautauqua and we danced um, in the opera house and we're part of the office. I danced in Swan Lake in the Court of Ballet, for instance. Um, but then I developed a condition in my feet that I only found out about a year ago, was misdiagnosed at the time. But then I, I couldn't do it anymore. So that was the end of that. 
that was the <laughs> but so, I do love that letter I want to frame it I swear <laughs> and so even though your uh, mother did run the theater did mm -hmm. your parents encourage you going into theater did they want that or yeah I think my mother did yeah it, it was a difference my father um they were very different and the marriage didn't work out unfortunately but he used to refer to there was a local women's club a players club and my father would refer to them as those dingbats over at the players club <laughs> so yes it was my mother's side of things for sure yeah so what were some of the early shows that you saw or theater that you saw well you know it wasn't until i was playing a leading role on broadway and promises that i had ever been to a broadway show i never had been and it was an actor's fun performance. Have you ever been to an actor's fun performance? Yes, I, I've been to one of them. Um, well, so you know what it's like. I mean, the audience goes crazy. Um, uh, I'm, I've lost your question now. What was it oh, again? It was oh, the about early the shows. Yeah, the, the shows. early shows that you saw. I think the first one was Last of the Red Hot Lovers, which was fantastic. Oh, I love that play. Jimmy Coco was the star of it. and. Um, uh, Doris Roberts and I became friends. She was in it and we worked together actually doing that play in summer stock later. Um, yeah, that was the first one that I saw. Yes. And so that, that leads me to ask you about, uh, Sid Caesar, who you, oh, God, yes. What an experience I had with him. Oh my God. He was so wonderful to work with. And I have to say, it's going to sound like braggadocio, but there's one thing I'm very, very proud of was that he complimented me on my comedic timing. Oh. <laughs> Coming from Sid Caesar, my God. Um, he was so humble. And um, I did that play a couple of other times, and I played Elaine Navazio instead of Bobby Michelle. Elaine Navazio, the nymphomaniac that he's trying to have a, an affair with in the first act. Anyway, um, but uh, do you know the play? I do, I do know okay, the play. So, you know, so of course, Bobby Michelle, the joke, the running joke is that she never shuts up and he cannot get a word in edgewise, just cannot. And um, when I was rehearsing with him, for instance, he stopped for a second, he was concerned with the director, he'd say, oh, I don't wanna upstage her, maybe I should stand down here a little bit. He was just the, so humble and so wonderful. And, and wonderful to uh, all of us, the three actresses in the show too. And every night we used to go to, uh, he, he wanted us to come and visit him in wherever he was staying, the hotel, motel, depending on what city we were in. And he would be in bed um, with his mistress. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, I could go further, but I won't. I mean, there's nothing pornographic in it at all, but I don't want to be, you know, just too personal, but it was a real uh, treat. And another extraordinary thing about him, because we'd see him at breakfast time when we all float to the surface in the morning. And he ate once a day. And he ate, I mean, the whole table would be covered with all the dishes that were brought to him. He was slender. And I, you couldn't believe how much he ate. You just couldn't believe it. I mean, he ate, for, it looked like for 10 men. And that's the only time he ate all day <laughs> oh he told me something else i can't resist telling you oh it's so wonderful 
his father had a bar where Sid was growing up. And I forget where it was, maybe the Bronx or something. And Sid worked there and Sid wore a white kind of a waiter's coat. And they had a cat named Five Cent Beers. And the Five Cent Beers was an old tomcat. And the beers were five cents in the bar. So Five Cent Beers was the stud for anybody who wanted kittens. So Sid would deliver very ceremoniously. She'd scoop up five cent beers and, and deliver five cent beers to some lady's house who had a cat, a female that she wanted to have kittens <laughs> And then he would go and call for five cent beers later and take them back home. <laughs> and he also told me that was he was that character, Barney Cashman. He had the same experiences his father had taken or a brother or somebody to a, a brothel when he was about 14 for his first sexual experience, etc. He was very, Sid did marry his high school sweetheart. So he was very close to that. And he was so, he had so much vulnerability in the role, as did Jimmy Coco, but, uh, and just brilliant writing from Neil Simon too. So yeah. that was a wonderful experience working with him. And did you ever, or did you get to work with Neil Simon on that particular thing? No, no. That uh, that opened after Promises. He wrote that later. Yeah. And so I'd love to also uh, talk about for a little bit um, Tom Bosley, who you did the yes. same play with. Yes, yes. Um, well, that was fine, except uh, he wants. Um, there's a kind of unwritten rule between actors. You never tell another actor what to do, ever. Uh -oh. If you've got anything going on, it should come through the director to the actors. And I violated that rule maybe twice in my life when I thought it was very much for the benefit of the actor that I was talking with. But Tom said something to me in rehearsal and I can't, repeat what I said but that was the end of him ever doing that again and other than that it was fine <laughs> it was just fine and so to go back um to go back a little bit in time when did you first move to New York and how did that decision happen or did you grow up in New York no no I grew up in Warren Pennsylvania which is a very small place up in northwestern Pennsylvania and in fact speaking I was thinking about this just last night about when I first was taking ballet classes. Um, a friend of mine that I'm still very close with that I grew up with there had told me that in a, a neighboring town there was a teacher teaching ballet to children who instead of plie to the children would say now squatte. <laughs> <laughs> that was the kind of milieu I was in in Warren, Pennsylvania. Yes, yes. Oh, I was 16. And my parents had divorced. And um, uh, the decision was made. I mean, I had been, I had started to sing just to myself. I, I thought uh, Joan Baez was a goddess. And it's when folk music was all the rage. And so um, my father actually bought me a guitar. And um, and I used to just sit and sing in my room by myself with the door closed. Um, and so I 
came to New York and uh, my mother had found an apartment for me in Greenwich Village. And um, I started singing in coffee houses there. Uh, and as I think you're aware of the one of the first places I worked, or, or not, there were a few coffee houses, but the longest was at the Cafe Wa, which is still there on McDougal Street. And I was singing there, oh, it could have been even a year, a long time. And the three of us on the bill were uh, Richard Pryor, Richie Havens, and me. And we would do two shows a night. And it would first, I forget who, maybe Richard Pryor opened, I don't remember. But one funny thing about him, at that time, he was not doing anything like the material that he ended up doing later that launched him, really. But at the time, I had gotten a part on a soap opera, and it was called A Time for Us. And Richard loved soap operas, and he was so impressed that I had been on a soap opera. <laughs> it's very funny. But Richie and I became, Richie Havens and I became great friends uh, till, oh really, till, till he died fairly recently, honestly. And then the nanny who was the boss, I don't know if he owned the place, he wanted to be my manager and I didn't want him to. I said no, so he fired me. And it was uh, Christmas. <laughs> so that was kind of my uh, introduction of show business and <laughs> what goes on there too. So I'd love to ask you, um, in addition to having a mother in show business, you also had a sister in show business. Yes. Mm -hmm. Go on to uh, replace you in Promises, Promises and mm -hmm. things like that. And so what was that experience like of having a whole sort of show business family? Um, well, it started really when I was eight years old. So that's really all I knew. My mother took me to audition for a play at the Warren High School that had a part for a little girl in it. And that was the beginning of it, really. And then she started her children's theater after that. So it was just kind of all around me for most of my life. And so when, uh, when working at the Cafe Wall, were you also auditioning for parts um, of your I must have been. I mean, I, because I did the soap opera, so I must have been. Uh -huh. And then Robert Morris did something else. I remember this too. I don't know if you are aware of, there was a, I think it was a television show called New Faces of 52, 1952. And Robert Morris was scouting for um, talent, performers in Greenwich Village. So he made a pilot, he wanted it to be a series, but so I was on that. I was chosen for that singing, but the, the pilot didn't sell. So that was the end of that. So um, I don't know. I, I mean, at some point I decided that I would rather pursue a career in the theater. So I kind of dropped folk singing and, and did that. Yeah. And what would be your go-to audition song at this time? Um, well, it's funny because I was talking with a friend about this the other day. Well, I would, it, it would depend on the material. Um, for a 
Broadway belt number I would sing, for instance, uh, uh, She Loves Me, changing it to He Loves Me, uh, or depending again on the material um, for a ballad, Stormy Weather. Um, when I auditioned for Promises, I sang Here, There, and Everywhere, the Beatles song. I don't remember what the other one was that I did. But for George M., I was in hair when I auditioned for George M. Um, and I think we were asked to sing a George M. Cohen song. So the song for it was Mary, Mary, you know that song, Mary. Um, I did that, but I did it down on one knee like Al Jolson, singing like Al Jolson. Then I come to find out, then when I was cast in the show, that song was done by Jackie Alloway, who was this gorgeous statuesque blonde, and she was coming down a huge, long, winding staircase, and gorgeous gowns with Mary, Mary, you know, just, I thought, oh my God, that's what I did? Why did they hire me? Oh my God. <laughs> so, um well, that's, that's a big subject, being cast and who's casting you and, and all of that. But so that was kind of, there was, I did a, a, a Dory Previn review at the Manhattan Theater Club, Children of Coincidence, which was the title of one of her songs. I was very interested in doing that because the idea of really contemporary music like that in a theatrical context was very interesting to me. And, and it was three singers, Lynn Lipton, Bob Gunter, and me. And it was the first thing that Bob Gunter, I think, is, did. He'd just come from Texas or somewhere. So for that, I sang um, River, Joni Mitchell's song, River, which I've recorded myself. I just love the song. I think it's gorgeous. So, um, Another one I used to do if it was a real legit song was uh, Mira. I come from the town of Mira, if you know that one. Um, and sometimes uh, Anyone Can Whistle, which is such a gorgeous song. It practically sings itself as a soprano song. I would do that. Yeah. It gives you an idea anyway. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so how did your uh, training with Uta Hagen begin? Oh, Uta Hagen. Um, actually, I was in Promises. Now, I had studied with Lee Strasberg when I was 17 in his private classes. You had to be 18, so I lied. I said he was 18. And then um, I was in Promises, and Millie Slavin, who played, um, what we call the character's name offhand, but the secretary, who was a previous lover of Sheldrake's, the married man, she was a student of Uta's and she told me about her and I didn't know who Uta Hagen was. I'd never seen her. I didn't know anything about her. And so, but <clears throat> you had to audition for her class. And I remember it particularly because it was, she said she would do a scene with me for the audition. And it was, uh, there was a blizzard going on that day. So we took a limousine down to Bank Street that I got to audition and I was accepted for the class. And Maybe, I can't remember if it was before that that I audited one, I don't think so, but it was like being hit by lightning, being in her class. What an incredible teacher, incredible teacher. And 
she became a mentor and a friend. I spent a lot of time with her uh, out at Montauk on home on weekends and things. Um, just a, a, a extraordinary teacher. And I studied with her for 12 years on and off because whenever I wasn't working, uh, if I was on the road, of course, I wasn't in the class, but um, when I was here, I was in her class all that time. And so for both her and uh, Lee Strasberg, what were their teaching styles like? What was it like to be in class with them? Oh, it was night and day. Um, oh. One of the things that I remember about Strasberg got very annoyed with me once because I asked him, I, I seem to be seeing some kind of a connection with people being very neuro neurosis and talent. And I was wondering, what's going on there? <laughs> Why does it seem so many people who are crazy and they're so talented? And I asked him after class and he said, um, in, in essence, what he had to say was that's nonsense. If that's true, then everybody in mental institutions would be geniuses, genius art, something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of what I learned from him. Uh, Have you ever heard from people you've interviewed who've been students of his, have you ever had them describe to you what he taught in his classes? I don't, I don't think that I've been able to talk to anyone who's mentioned that they were a student of his. Okay. Um, then I'll just be a little more detailed than I might have been. One of the things that he did that he always started the class with this. His lessons were in, in Carnegie Hall, in a studio in Carnegie Hall that had a very small stage and then seats banked up like he would in a theater where the class sat. And it was a relaxation exercise and physical relaxation. And he would have, say, five chairs spread across the little stage. And um, the students would sit in them and then you're supposed to loll as best you can your eyes closed, your legs spread out, your arms hanging, dangling. And the idea was to try to achieve total physical relaxation. And he'd give the students a chance to do that. And then he would go and check them by picking up an arm, say, and waving it around and dropping to see if the arm is responding or not. Um, and move a leg, et cetera, to check the physical relaxation. And, and sometimes he would say, you feel that you're completely relaxed. A student would say yes. But then he'd pick up, say, someone's arm and it would stay in the air. They weren't physically totally relaxed at all. So it's, it was very interesting. Um, and then he had another exercise that everyone had to do called song and dance, where you had to get up and stand on this little stage and you had to keep moving continuously, a dance. It's not real dancing in any way, but the whole point is just moving your body all over the place and singing anything. It didn't matter. It could be gibberish. It could be anything. But you had to stare at the class the whole time you're doing it. You couldn't close your eyes. You, so it was a confrontation, really, with the students watching you. And the most amazing emotional eruptions happened. 
by the student doing this exercise. Absolutely amazing, uh, including me. And it was a complete surprise. I thought, oh, nothing that ever going to happen to me. Oh. And the point, I guess I must have asked him about this sometime later, was that physical tension blocks the expression of emotion. So what he seemed to be after was that kind of release in one. Um, and I have to say, that's probably the only thing that I learned. <laughs> and, oh, but there was, yeah, and he wrote about this. This was similar to, to something that Uta taught as well, which was recalling experiences in your life that you could draw on to play the role. If you have a character who's devastated by grief, for instance, to go to some experience you've had in your own life like that, to call on that, some emotional memory that will then feed you as the, as the actor to play the role. So that was about it. But with Uta, it was a whole other thing. A whole other thing. Um, one of the first things kind of ABC is, uh, who am I? You ask yourself as the character. So you never say, who is she? No, who am I? You think of it in those terms. Who am I? What do I want? What's in my way? What do I do about it? And what I do about it is the action. And uh, she, uh, she actually made a kind of joke of this, to do is to be, to be is to do, do be, do be, do be, do be, do. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting because even as we're, we're talking right now, uh, what do you want from me? You want to know certain things. Um, what are the obstacles that you have? Um, what's in your way? You don't know me well. Uh, there are blank spots in my life that you don't know about. So you don't even know what, what you don't know. Uh, what do you do about it? Uh, you may grab onto some certain subject or some aspect of the subject to ask about. It's true every moment of our life. If you think of when you got up this morning, what did you want? Okay, to get out of bed. Or maybe you didn't. The objective is you have an appointment, you have to get there. Um, so that's the objective. What do I want to get to this appointment? What's in my way? I'm so comfortable in this bed. I do not want to get up. What do I do about it? I shut off the alarm and turn over and say, oh, a few more minutes. <laughs> you know, see what I mean? I mean, it's, it's life itself that she tapped into. And it's true of, of every character, every, um, in any good writing anyway. That's what you're going to find, and that's what you have to go by. And then, it's, of course, it's there's lots more to it than that. But what I'm telling you, this part of it is the these are it's the ABC. Yeah. ABC. Yeah. And so, I would love to um, to change the topic a little bit. I would love to ask you um, about how uh, Royal Flush happened on early musical <laughs> that you did. Well, you know. I am astonished he found a photograph because I'm astonished. I found one myself, but only very recently. Um, 
I don't remember the audition for it, but obviously I auditioned for it. And um, it was, Kay Ballard was the star and Nikki Deems, they were both the stars. And it took place in a mythical Middle Eastern kingdom, but I was the ingenue. And Jack Cole directed it, it was crazy. And uh, yes, I was 18, I might've been 17, I'm not exactly sure, but um, there were three different directors. We'd come to rehearsal, out of, out of town trials, and suddenly there's a new director there. And one was Martin, Martin Gable, who said, he was the second director who replaced Jack Cole. And he said, so we arrived, you know, astonished, where's, where's Jack Cole? And they said, we are going to sail the buffeting seas of Broadway. <laughs> That's what he said to us. Um, and then it was sad and disappointing. I remember vividly when we closed in Philadelphia and we were given the notice, no, that's when June Gable came in as the third director that, um, and coming back on the bus to New York. And uh, that was very disappointing. But that's, I mean, I, I, I guess that was my first real taste of working in the theater in New York because there was a whole subculture of all the dancers, the chorus, you know, the whole backstage life that I had never experienced before with all kinds of uh, expression, cultural behaviors, etc., that were totally foreign to me. So that was the start of getting to kind of know that life, yeah. And what was your uh, part like in that show? I know you remember some of the, some of the lyrics. Yes. <laughs> well, the only thing I remember about it was I was trying to seduce the king and I was in a harem outfit. And the, let's see, the first verse was, I'd be something for, I mean, I'm not going to sing it now, but I remember the melody of it too. I was some, I'd be something for an elderly gentleman, a pick-me-up when he's all in, a slightly tonic sin. Where the hormones leave off, I begin. <laughs> I guess I was writhing around in a harem outfit, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I generally never, ever, ever forget songs, ever, ever. And having had this experience, what do you think about the process of out-of-town tryouts? Do you think they're like very important or? Oh, they're extremely important. They're so important. And unfortunately, a lot of the um, failures that we see on the stage now, because of the expenses, I suppose, they've almost been eliminated. Instead, they have... They do a show, a Broadway show, two weeks rehearsal, three weeks rehearsal, then they open on Broadway and it doesn't go well. You know, you have to work on these things. You have to see what you have, not to mention the pressure on the, on the cast to come up to develop these performance, performances in such a short time. Well, they're very, very important. And they seem to be, wow. Oh, to have almost disappeared as far as I know. It's not, it's not good. Yeah. And so you did sort of um sort of an in-town tryout of hair off Broadway at the public theater. Oh and, yes, yes. And so how did that come into your life? Well, uh, I don't remember how I 
first audition for it. Maybe they asked me to, I don't know. I was singing in the village at that time. And I know that uh, Rado and Ragnar were down there looking for people to cast. And in fact, they did cast for what was referred to as the tribe, which was in essence like the chorus in a Broadway musical. Uh, they wanted people right off the streets. They really did for the tribe. And they got them and they paid a high price for that too, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> Um, uh, and I auditioned for it five times and I remember being really angry. I was not going to go back again. I was not. I thought if they don't know by now, the hell with it. I thought, you, what, five, what, four times? And you want to come but five? But a friend of mine talked me into it kind of at the last minute. So I went and did it. Um, and working with Joe Pappas wonderful absolutely wonderful at that time for instance he paid more than the minimum salary just voluntarily to everybody uh, so that was that was quite an experience so what were some of the changes that were made to that show or how did that show sort of develop during this well I have to tell you, I did not care for the Broadway production at all, not at all. There were a lot of changes made. One of the most wonderful things, when Tom O'Horgan came in as director, well, Rado and Ragney changed things a lot for the film, for other productions, they were always doing that. It was, it's, you know, kind of arbitrary in that sense. But Gerald Friedman was the first director at the public theater and in the very opening sequence just to give you an example uh we all had masks on our faces completely and the cast was assembled on the stage and we were marching in formation almost like a military formation and um there was somebody one of the cast members blowing a whistle. And then this is how Friedman dramatized dropping out of society, which is what was going on at that time in this country. So one by one, we would peel off, one of us would peel off and take off the mask, which was declaring your individuality. You weren't a sheep following in formation until all of us were finally standing without the masks. And I just thought that was wonderful. It was just brilliant. And he used to do improvisations with us on um, for scenes that might have been touching on the Vietnam War about you'd have to get up and die. You know, and so you choose the way you did it. So there, it was being developed in that sense. Um, and that was essentially it. What, what I didn't like, uh, for instance, about the Broadway production was that in the original, the show was much more centered around the four main characters. So there was a chance to care about them. But that got so lost later with the beings and you know, whatever was going on. There was no nude scene that was added later. I was actually, I, I didn't go on 
to the Broadway production because I got George M. And so that I was very interested in that because it was so different than hair. And in fact, I was rehearsing George M. during the day and doing hair at night, which was really <laughs> And so I'm, you know, tap dancing and singing Cohen songs by day. And at night, I'm wearing a button that says, let's get naked and smoke. <laughs> and so when uh, Hare was waiting for Broadway Theater to open up, we were at the Cheetah Discotheque. We moved from the public to the Cheetah Discotheque and did it there. Uh, and by, so I left, then George M. opened. Um, before they went to the Broadway house. Yeah. And so, so I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to, um, do you prefer a show that's more of a George M or more of a hair? In terms of no, what interested me was the challenge of doing something different. In fact, I was thinking about something yesterday that I did. Uh, I did a production of Hot L Baltimore regional theater at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. And I played um, uh, Jackie, who is the lesbian who has dreams of having a garlic farm. And, and uh, Mary Gorman was brilliant in it off Broadway, Circle Miss Grace, brilliant in it because she had so much vulnerability. And, you know, she's a tough, you know, she's really a macho, old dyke, really. And, and but she, oh, her performance was just magnificent. So that's the role that I played. And I really wanted to do it. And I, at the same time, I was offered a Broadway play that conflicted with the dates in Cincinnati. And I chose to go to Cincinnati instead. And my agents thought I was crazy, but I didn't think the Broadway play was good. It just wasn't good. And so I didn't care. So, but when I was in Cincinnati in rehearsal and I knew the play open, I rushed right out and I got the times and it, it closed the night it opened. So, right. so what interested me was the challenge of different material. And I've actually done many, many more plays than I have musicals. Um, from all kinds of, you know, Tennessee Williams and Aldi and Oscar Wilde and, and uh, uh, Neil Simon, of course, and, and um, Strindberg and, you know, a whole bunch. And that's what's interesting to me. And were there other shows that you turned down at this point in your career or, or throughout your career? Um, that I turned down. Um, I'm not remembering that particularly as much as ones that I started in and then left because of what was going on. <laughs> Are you? Do you want to talk about those or I understand if not? No, no, I can. Um, one of them, I'll, I mean, I'm only going to, talk about because I think very few people are aware of this play and it's brilliant. It's a Strindberg play. It's called Playing with Fire. It's a one act play. And uh, actually Kevin Klein and I were doing it. We were playing opposite each other. It's, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's very dark, but it's hilarious. And the playing with fire refers to sex, to sexual sexual stuff going on between the, the characters. Um, and the role that I was doing was the role of the wife. And there's a friend 
and he's only called the friend in the play, who comes to visit the wife and her husband and the wife's father. Um, maybe it's the husband's father, I don't remember. And um, a maid working for the family. And so there's all this stuff going on with the, the father who's having a thing with the maid and, and the friend. And you have to remember that the time, it's 18, late 1800s, this is taking place. In, the friend and the wife have this thing going on between them that is really unacknowledged. And, um, and the wife is actually very seductive with him and responding to what he is doing. And when he tries to bring it out in some way, she's completely aghast that, oh, how could you ever think? But in essence, what happens, now it's coming back to me more vividly. Once it's brought out into the open, the husband knows what's going on, the two of them. And, and they haven't acted on it, mind you, but it's going on. Well, once it's brought out into the open, it goes ice cold because it depends on being <laughs> covert. And so in that way, the hus that's how the husband has manipulated the situation to get it brought out into the open. And that's how he defeats the, the friend as a, a threat. So it's very interesting. It's really, but it's, anyway, um, it just, oh yeah, there was another one too. Aye, aye, aye. Um, <laughs> So I just was not happy with how that was being handled. And uh, then it did open and the reviews were disastrous. And then there was another one, another Strindberg thing that I did, this Julie. Um, and I didn't like how that was being done at all. I played Christine and uh, who's the maid. I won't elaborate on it, but uh, I got out of it because I fell. I had a bad accident, sprained my ankle really badly. It was in a cast. And I said, it's not worth killing myself to do it. And again, it came to New York and it opened and the reviews were very bad. So I was lucky to be out of that one too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so to go back for a minute to hair, was there a sense at the time you were doing it that it would be as revolutionary as it was? Or when did you know that? No, no, certainly not to me. But I also thought of it as really I I knew what real rock and roll was. I I did. And that wasn't it. And I think the, it was revolutionary to the theater as it turns out, because that kind of music was not being done in the theater until then. So it opened up a whole, whole new thing. So, and even now looking back, I mean, actually in the past few years, I've performed at 50th anniversary celebrations and concerts of three of the shows that I had done and singing what I had done in those shows. And so, um, which is kind of great, I think, but uh, the music of hair is just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Really, really wonderful. Um, 
And as I know I had told you once before when I was doing Hang Down Your Head and Die, that did the same night it opened off Broadway, that's where Rado and Ragney met each other and went on to write here. <laughs> and what was your collaboration like with them, two uh, great writers? Oh, there, there wasn't any really. Oh. I, mean, I just did the part, did the job. No, there wasn't any. No, uh-uh. And so to uh, to talk about George M, I'd love to ask you what it was like to work with Joe Layton, who was another great writer. Oh, director. he was wonderful. He called me beauty. It was so sweet. <laughs> he was wonderful. He was uh, very strict. I mean, just a great, great theater artist. Just, just wonderful. But one of the favorite things to me about him was he... Uh, he would come back after we'd been running, say a few months, and he'd call the cast on stage for notes afterwards. And he'd say, all right, now, now we're gonna take out the improvements, meaning the things that the actors had started doing. Uh, no, he was really great. He was really great. In fact, I've got something, I should throw it out. I, I just should. An opening night gift was um, a little makeup case little overnight case with the tag engraved. I think it said, give my regards to Broadway or something on it. And I, I still have it. I think, you know, I really should just dispose of that. But I, I have such a sentimental attachment to it. I loved working with him. He was great. There was another thing about him that was very interesting. When I sang the song, Billy, I did something because of what the script was indicating that this character Agnes Nolan is is nervous before she's singing the song to audition for Cohen. That I just just for myself, I did this little thing that I, you know I'm a little tentative at first when I started singing, then got into the song and gained confidence and sang out more. And it was a very subtle thing that I was doing. Um, and then after a while, I thought, oh well. I won't do that anymore. I don't think anybody's noticing or anything. And Joe said to me, Jill, don't stop doing that. Why did you stop doing that? I thought, oh my God, he noticed it. You know, very, very subtle thing. So I, I put it back and I'm, I mean, really subtle, really subtle. So that was pretty interesting to me about him. Yeah. yeah. And were there certain performers, real performers who inspired you for this role? In uh, in George M. Yeah. No. Oh. No, I can't. No. Uh oh. No, I just thought of it as the role, and mm, well, I was thinking I was even going to ask you about Reed Bernie is a very good friend of mine, and. I don't know if you have seen the film Mass that he's in now. No, I haven't. Oh my God, the performances are just extraordinary. You must see it, but Reed inspires me just as an artist, theater artist, generally. When it came to George M, no, I mean, I can remember very well, who am I? What do I want? What's in my way? You know, I was applying these things that I was learning. And actually that was, I wasn't studying with Uta yet. That was with Ed Morehouse, who was teaching at HB. 
where I later became a teacher at Peter's invitation. And boy, did I love that. That was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And so what was it like to collaborate with Joel Gray on, on George Hamilton? Oh, he was so wonderful to me. And he's a good friend to this day. Oh. He was so wonderful to me. So wonderful to me. And then um, he called me voluptua. <laughs> I think because I was taller, you know, I don't know, but um, I have something else that he gave me. There was a song that we did, a duet to us, the two of us, um, and they ended up cutting it before we opened. But he gave me, it's a little framed silver thing engraved, the two of us, it's a picture of the two of us singing. And then 16 years later, he did a tour of it that he directed for the big music tents, Westbury Music Fair, you know, things like that. And he asked me to do it again and do the same role. And I did. 16 years later, how often do you get to do that? And he was wonderful. Had your, had your interpretation changed that many years later or was it different? No, I don't think so. No, uh-uh. And so even though you uh, had had the foot condition that prevented you from doing some of the ballet, did you still like to dance in shows and that kind of dance? Uh, no, actually the only one I danced in, I think, was George M. And there was a very demanding number called Popularity that Leighton choreographed that was incredible. It was very demanding and it, uh, it wasn't a tap number. But the idea was we would start dancing in rehearsal clothes. And by the end of the number, we were all in full costume. So it was for the audience watching the creation of this big dance number from the first steps in rehearsal to the final product, which meant it was timing, it was insane. We'd get run off into the wings and there would be a dresser there who would put on one piece of clothing on us. And then you right back out dancing again. So it was constantly switching the ranks from the stage to the wings then you get a hat on your head and rush back out and dance. And uh, it was a fabulous idea. And that was very, very demanding, very demanding to, on everybody, the dancers, the, the dressers to, to bring off. I'm trying to think if I danced in any other show. I don't think I have. Um. And so um, I'd be curious to ask not about this show in particular, what has your opinion been on critics throughout your career, their role and their importance? Their role? Well, there was a critic in Boston, Elliot, and I don't recall his last name, Elliot Norton, I think. Oh. Elliot Norton, yes, was very, very highly respected, very highly respected. And I learned why, um, because when he wrote about promises, for instance, the criticism was so constructive and so smart um, that it, it's very helpful to, to the writers, composers, etc. I'm thinking of, of George Bernard Shaw's dramatic criticism, which if you haven't read, you must read. There's a volume of it that's so extraordinary. He does a, 
he writes, for instance, in the same season in London, uh, Eleanor Duza and Sarah Bernhardt both played the same role. I think it was the role of Magda. And he compares the two performances, where it was Bernhardt's a lot more of the theatricality, et cetera, that's stunning in its own way. But with Duza, it was the humanity. It was fantastic. And another one that was, I was hilarious because at the time, um, melodramas were all the rage. And the title of one of his reviews was Boiled Heroin. And that's because <laughs> this took place, some play it took place on a ship and the heroine gets trapped in the boiler room for some reason or other. <laughs> it's so wonderful, you should read it. But when you read real criticism, that's extraordinary. There are, yeah, I mean, there are other critics who just are vicious as a way to get famous. Um, but it's, it's fascinating if you read different reviews of the same thing that you've seen. And you see how subjective it really is. The good ones can really inform they're really serving art and the art of the theater or the art of the actors etc um like this recently i was so impressed by it. oh the new york times review of company was very interesting very interesting to me and he said in the end that he really enjoyed it Nevertheless, but the things that he pointed out about it, I haven't seen it, but the things that he pointed out about it were made a lot of sense to me about what he found, what he wasn't thrilled about. And um, so that kind of really intelligent analysis and insight can be wonderful if it's a, if it's a really good critic. Other than that, I don't read reviews ever of what I do. And that's something I learned from Uta Hagen too. She never did either. Uh, and she would say, if you're gonna believe the good, then you're gonna have to believe the bad they say about you too. <laughs> so um, I guess that's the best response I could give you. And so your your next role was perhaps your most famous uh, Broadway role, which was starring in Promises, Promises. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how did this come about, the audition or anything like that? Well, I could tell you a funny little story about that, actually. Well, I was in George M. and I was under contract. Uh, luckily, David Black, the producer, very kindly let me out when I got the, the job in Promises. And he didn't say I have to pay in the, you know, do anything like that. He was very good. Um, so I knew that I supposedly was under ex exclusive contract for a time with Georgian, but I auditioned anyway. But one of the things was there's a, there's a bar up the street from where I live called Carney's. It's been there forever. And, you know, it's a little restaurant, a little pub kind of place. And the night before my third audition for Promises, I could not sleep. I just couldn't sleep. And so I thought, well, maybe if I get some alcohol, it'll help me go to sleep. So I went up to Carney's about one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I sat at the bar and I was very nervous and I ordered a scotch or something. I don't know what the hell I ordered, but 
and there was a man sitting next to me and I was just talking because I was very nervous. And I said, you know, tomorrow I have my final audition for this big Broadway show, it's the lead. And I'm sure he thought I was nuts, but <laughs> so, and I, sometimes I've thought about that of that guy and knew <laughs> it had been true. So um, yeah, I just, I auditioned, that's all. I think it was three auditions. But David Merrick was another trip. Oh, 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 oh. Well, he was called the Prince of Darkness for very good reason, believe me. Um, did you know that? That was how he was referred to in the theater? No, I, I hadn't heard that before. Oh, yes. The Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Satan. So, but he was trying to get me for peanuts in terms of salary, peanuts. Oh, yeah. And I wouldn't do it. I mean, I just felt he's exploiting me and I'm not going to have it. And um, I had agents who backed me up there, which is good. But I was taking a chance, but I thought, where else, where else are they going to get somebody who can sing this music, which was kind of unusual at that time for, because I'm not a legit Broadway singer by any means, sing this music and play the role. So I stood my ground for a long time, for months. And he was even putting in the newspapers and trying to wear me down. He was planting that Liza Minnelli was now going to be doing the role, things like that. And of course, that's completely illegal. According to Actors' Equity Standards, you can't do that. Once, once you have a, uh, an offer, you're, you're bound by it. And he, so I wouldn't back down. I wouldn't back down. Finally, he went so far as to call me at his office, call me at home, at home saying, well, Bob Moore, the director, was having second thoughts about me, and I had to come in and audition again. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and I think he said, oh, oh, Jerry Orbach will be there to read with you too, or something. Well, I thought this is baloney. And I was right, and I had a manager at the time who went with me. So we went to Merrick's office. There was no audition. He was trying to wear me down. He was trying to intimidate me and frighten me, and, and I never did. I stood my ground. So that was uh, one, one experience with America. Um, and uh, Bob Moore was wonderful to work with. Uh, and, and Neil was rewriting all the time, out of town, all the time. Songs going in, songs coming out. That's, that's what should happen. That's how it should be done. Yeah. And what were some of the biggest changes that you can remember? Well, there was one song called Hot Foods. It wrote, Hot Foods, Hot Foods. That's the way to the heart of a man. I do remember that one. And one of the most delicious things, I think, in the script was that Chuck has fantasies about Fran, but the audience doesn't know it's a fantasy yet. And <laughs> you kind of catch on later. So this was a fantasy of Chuck's that he's come home and there's Fran waiting for him with a hot dinner all ready to go. <laughs> and <laughs> so we, I learned it. We tried that out. They cut that. Um, but developmentally, the song, I'll Never Fall in Love Again, we were out of town. Oh, uh, I know you're aware of this, that it was added in, the, in Washington. 
and Bert wrote it in two days. And he sat down with me. I had my guitar with me. I always traveled with my guitar because I love to just sit and play it and sing for myself. So they wanted to add something quiet for the second act. I said, well, if you like, I can play the guitar a little bit. So I showed them what I could do. Uh, and then he wrote the song. And that's how that song came about. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I played my own guitar initially until by the time we came to New York, they, they got a guitar from Goya that I used instead. Um, and I've had the chance a number of times now to sing that again. And I love singing it. It's just, it's a beautiful melody. I just love the melody of it. As far as the other things, as far as my stuff, that song, Hot Food, was added and then cut. Yeah, I can't, I don't recall other things, particularly in the script uh, that I was doing that were, were changed. Oh, yeah. No. And I'd love to ask about uh, playing opposite the great uh, Jerry Orbachan. Oh, my God. You will never meet anybody that has anything less than sterling praise for that man as a human being, as a man, as an actor. He's just the best. Well, I'll tell you something funny about Jerry. He, even on opening night, he played poker backstage with the stage hits. And he had it timed. So if he had to make an entrance, exactly how many steps it would take him once he stood up from the poker table to walk to the wing and make his entrance on the stage and even opening night. And so I said, you know, Jerry, do you do that? Because it's, it's some way to just keep your nerves at bay or something like that. And he essentially said, yes, that's exactly why. <laughs> oh, he was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Wonderful man. Just wonderful. And what do you think it was that made Promises, Promises so successful that it did run for like four years? Or... Oh. I don't know, because actually, the reviews initially were not that good for the music, which I think was heartbreaking to Bert. It was so unusual to have music like that in a, in a Broadway show without big boffo endings on a lot of the things, uh, typical Broadway, you know, stuff like that. And actually, I had a very interesting conversation with Kristen Chenoweth, who I met. Um, she had, she thought I was dead. And somebody had told me she thought I was dead. <laughs> it's quite a funny thing. Um, I never went to see the, the uh, revival, but I went to see On the 20th Century, that she was just oh. brilliant. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She was wonderful. And I'd never met her. And I met somebody there who was an actor who was a friend of Kristen's. And well, what happened was a, a kind of fan of mine. A, a guy, he'd been a fan of mine as a teenager. I have a couple of friends like that who, who fell in love with the show. They were teenagers and saw it in the original production. They went to see the revival. And they were waiting to get Kristen's uh, autograph. And my friend Doug said that, that um, he knew me, that we were friends, and I was a very good friend of a good friend of his. 
And she said, oh, God, oh, oh, it's so sad about Jill, oh, God. And my friend said, what do you mean? I said, well, she, she's, that she died, she's dead. And Doug said, no, I think I would know if she had <laughs> And he said, where did you get that idea? And she said, well, Neil Simon told me. <laughs> now, I knew I had heard that Neil had Alzheimer's oh. at the time. So I knew that was going on. I'm doing rehearsals, etc. So, oh God. So when this actor I know found out it was me sitting behind him, then he invited me up to the VIP something or other at intermission and back down. And I said, he said Kristen was his friend and he was going to be going to see her. And uh, I said, well, I can't resist telling you that she thinks I'm dead. So then he insisted on dragging me backstage to meet her. I didn't want to go. I said, no, no, I don't know. God, no, 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 no. He would not take no for an answer. So he, there was a long line to wait to see, of course. And then he took my hand and he said, uh, Kristen, uh, just want you to know the, the uh, rumors of Jill O'Hara's death greatly exaggerated. <laughs> it's just, and she was so excited and I was so excited to meet her and, and we were talking about the show and she said she didn't know how I had done it. She said she cried when she heard I died. She was so sad and all kinds of things. And then we talked like colleagues really about the show, the difficulties in the role. She said, how did you do this? I kept saying, how did you do this eight times a week? How did you do this? And I said, well, Chris, you know, for one thing, one thing is that here you are, uh, and especially when it was done originally, Here's this character who's having an affair with a married man, tries to commit suicide, and it's a musical. <laughs> so, this is very, <laughs> very unusual. Um, and it's true. I mean, it's difficult to, to pull that off. It really is. So as far as the success, I have no idea because I had, I've never seen it. I only did it. I was in it. I, I don't know. I don't know. But when we did the 50th anniversary concert celebration of it, and it was with the original orchestrations and this great Broadway orchestra, that music was so good. And the orchestration so good. So that floored me. And, and maybe that's why. I, I have no idea. I have no idea why it was so popular. I don't know. So what made you decide to stay in the show the amount of time you did? And then when did you decide to leave? Well, it was just time to do something else. My contract was up and it was just time to go on to the next. And also I was very interested in, uh, well, I went on to do a lot of plays. That's what I went on to do. But, um, and then eventually to my own recordings. And I was very, very interested in, in doing that. And I still am. I'm thinking of doing another one now. Oh. Besides the two that I have, yeah. Uh, yeah, very interested in that. That was a whole different area of uh, my performing. Yeah, yeah. And so what was your experience like at this young age of being one of the biggest stars on Broadway? <laughs> I never felt like that. I really didn't. Actually, I'm astonished today when I encounter people. I, I was married and I was in Pennsylvania a lot of the time. 
maybe half the time there, half the time here, back and forth. Um, my marriage, my life was really centered around my marriage for many, many years. And so I wasn't in New York and I wasn't performing. And, and, um, and then I, when the marriage ended and I was back here, and that wasn't really until uh, 2014. Um, and I would meet people and they would hear my name and go crazy. And I'm like, God, what, what? I'm getting used to it now, honestly. I am. I truly am. I don't get it. And I thought, well, where do I put that? I, well, I thought, well, enjoy it. Just enjoy it. <laughs> but no, I, actually, when, they, when I was nominated for the Tony, I thought, oh, well, they had to come up with four names. That's really how I thought of it, honestly. And so what, have you made a, or was it a conscious choice to not come back to Broadway again after that? Or was that sort of how it happened? Just how it happened? Um, no. No, it wasn't a conscious choice. I'm trying to think of what, no, uh-uh. Oh. It was just, I don't know, the journey I was on, the opportunities I had or didn't have, I, I don't know. But, you know, I'm well aware of something. I, it took me a long time to learn this. That I didn't fit the job description in many ways for a Broadway musical because I don't sing like that. I, I'm not a legit singer. If, if you're gonna go by central casting, you know, kind of idea, that's not me. So in a way, whatever uniqueness I had and have is a strength, and in a way, it's a deficit too, because I don't fit the job description. So I very well understand that. Um, it's funny because I was thinking about Bette Midler the other day, who was in the chorus of Fiddler on the Roof, in the chorus. Well, she broke out of that and look what she's done, you know, she's had this great career. So it's, they're different worlds entirely, different, different worlds entirely. And uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to how did you develop your unique singing style that can be heard so vividly on that album? It's <laughs> wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Chelsea. Um, uh, I, I didn't develop it. I sing from my heart. It's as simple as that. And I had never really studied singing until after I opened in Promises. And I went to Keith um, Richards, who was a great, great teacher. I'm sorry, Keith Davis, great, great teacher. And I learned a lot from him. And then I studied with him and then I started singing in the cabaret and, and then, you know, went on from there. And, um, and the principles that he taught me, I often think of it, it's the same as, um, the first five positions in ballet, first, second, third, fourth, fifth position, said it's kind of a foundation. If you have a good foundation, you can improve on it forever, endlessly, endlessly. And then after I stopped studying with him and I was away for years and then I went back, he was struck by how much I had improved. 
And it was because of the tools that he gave me, which is what I was teaching at HB too, when I was doing the musical uh, performance technique and singing technique classes, which I loved doing. So that even now, I'm so glad I, I tape recorded my lessons with him. And I have them now and I work with them. And I all the time I suddenly say, Oh, that's what he was trying to teach you. Oh, that's what it was. So that's that's wonderful. That's very exciting to me. So in terms of developing, yes, technically, it's just the, the technique I learned from him. The rest of it, that's one thing, but the most important is is singing straight from your heart. That's the most important of all. What I found when I was teaching, very often students would come in with some kind of fantasy in their heads about what a cabaret singer is, had nothing to do with them, nothing. Um, so that's, that's a very, very important thing to know. It's got to be from you. And also don't act singing. Acting is one thing, singing is another, dancing is another. It's, you have to be living the song, not acting like you're feeling something. You have to be experiencing it, really, for real, right then. And once I, I saw so quickly how the students would improve, so quickly it amazed me once they really understood that. Just amazed me, amazed me. One of the best things in my teaching experience there happened with uh, I had a student who was a high school teacher. He just loved to sing and he'd been studying their teachers for years. And he had a high school graduation class coming up. Um, and his, his instrument was limited. It was, but he really caught on to singing just from his heart. And the principal asked him if he would sing at the ceremony. And so he came to class and he said, I've been asked, what do you think it would have to be a cappella?" I said, okay, you've got to get a pitch pipe. I said, come and do it in the class and see how you feel. So you got to get a pitch pipe, otherwise you'll be starting on Mars, some note on Mars, instead of, you know, you're going to be nervous. So he came into class the next week and he sang it, a cappella with his little pitch pipe. And he sang to, to dream the impossible dream. And we said, do it, it's great, do it. So he, the next week was the graduation ceremony. He did it. He came back. Of course, we all wanted to know how it went. And he said, a couple of the students had come up. They loved it. And some of them were crying. They were coming up to him, thanking him. Now, that is so moving to me that he would do that, that they got it. That's what he was trying to give them before they launch off you know, into the next phase of their lives. So that's what it's about to me. That's what it's about. And how did you go about picking your own repertoire when you were starting in the cabaret world? Uh, it's so interesting because um, I have, I have uh, a new show in mind to do. I was talking with Pangea about it, but now with what's going on, with COVID in the city, I said, mm, we're gonna pause on that. But 
in songs, I've realized that express something that I have experienced that I, so I feel very deeply. And of course, hopefully that's also beautiful music too. Um, and that, that's, that's it. it it's, I want to sing. There was one song I did. Um, I recorded this to Texas girl after the funeral of her father. And for a long time, I could not sing that. I just start weeping. I couldn't sing it. I couldn't. I thought, oh God, I can't get past that. I can't get past it. And uh, then eventually I did. And it's a beautiful song. But of course it resonated with me, you know, with my own love for my father. But when I was doing it in London, in the oh, one woman show I did there, these English musicians, <laughs> there were four of them on the stage and they would cry when I sang it. They were fathers and they had children. And the pianist would put on sunglasses <laughs> so that the audience couldn't see that he was weeping. So it moves me because it expresses something that I feel very deeply. And of course, it has to be good music. That, that's one thing about if you're in something and you, you're burdened with singing a bad song. It's not fun. <laughs> not fun. <laughs> no. Uh -uh. I would love to um, take a quick detour from your cabaret career to ask about the uh, the movie that you did, uh, Sidelong Glances of a Pigeon King. Yes, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> and so how did, because this is something different than most of the other things that you did. So how did this happen? Well, an audition. I was in Promises and there was a friend of John Dexter's who saw me, I guess apparently recommended to John Dexter that he should uh, audition me, which he did. And um, I was under exclusive contract with Merrick. Um, and he would not let me do the film. I mean, I, I, I guess the last part of it was doing a screen test for it. But so I, I think I went to see him and um, I persuaded him. Eventually he said yes, but he made the producers jump through hoops. He made them get an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London for $2 million against me missing a performance. And I promised him that I would not miss a performance, and I didn't. And that was difficult because I would be picked up to go to the studio at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm doing eight shows a week. And on matinee days, he would, Dexter would be working me over trying to get me to stay and keep filming. But I know I had given my word to Merrick, so I didn't. Um, so that was, I mean, I didn't get to have the fun, like the rap party when you finish you, and no, I had to rush to get to the theater and it was exhausting too. Uh, very exhausting. And I had insomnia then anyway, even, even with that schedule. So, but it was disappointing to me, the film, because Dexter really didn't understand anything about it. The 60s. <laughs> it wasn't a good movie. It just wasn't. But um, the character that was supposed to be, that I played, was supposed to be somebody who was dropping out. That was not happening at all. And I was so disappointed. I thought, I'm going to be in a movie. And they put almost no makeup on me. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, this is what I expected. But there were fun things like my chair, the usual chair you see with your name on it. You know, the 
folding canvas chair on the set. And Dexter was a maniac. He finished ahead of schedule. Um, uh, and he, a lot of people have had a lot of problems with him. I didn't at all because I laughed whenever he'd try to insult me or harass me or do, I just, honest to God, I really, I never felt that he was mean at all. Not, but he was to some people, but not to me. I mean, he, he was trying to get me to do a nude scene that was absolutely established up front. There's no way I'm doing that, forget it. But he'd keep trying, you know, and I just tell him, you know, go jump in the lake or something and he'd leave me alone. Uh, yeah. I also want to ask if you have memories of working with Elaine Strickshaws. Oh, well, it's, I shared a dressing room with her once. Oh. That's, I never worked with her. We were on the bill the same time. It was a, I think it was a benefit for um, ASCAP. And we were doing a performance. I think, <clears throat> I think this was in Stockbridge. But what I remember about it, because we were sitting next to each other, was her telling me that she, the reason that she drank was because she had such bad stage fright that she had to drink before she could go on stage. And what amazed me about it was, I thought, my God, if it's a day I'm seeing, I wouldn't have a teaspoon of wine, not a teaspoon. I mean, one is so finely tuned to sing. To me, I mean, that surprised me. But uh, her one woman show was sensational. So, oh my God, that was great. Did you see that? I I wasn't uh, born by that. Uh, <laughs> oh, was it that long ago? Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you put it. You weren't born. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. So that um, that leads me to ask you about your uh, one moment show, Jill and her jacks, which you didn't. Oh love. yes, yes, right, yeah, yeah. Well, that. The producer, Dan Crawford, who had the King's Head Theater there, he came up with that title. I had developed something called uh, Love After 40 or A Woman in Progress. That was the title of uh, a cabaret show that I did. And I had two versions of it, one, of, uh, uh, one for cabaret 45 minutes long and the other a full concert version. And, but Dan didn't think that that title would mean much to an English audience. So he came up with Jill and her Jacks, meaning Jacks would cover the lovers and, and Jacks would cover the, the band that I was working with too, the musicians. So uh, that was extraordinary. And, and of course it was pretty nerve wracking. I knew I was gonna be reviewed by the London theater critics because it was a theatrical evening. It wasn't a concert, it was, with an intermission and properly done with all that. So I had to find a way to string it all together um, in order to sing the songs I wanted to sing, but it had to be cohesive. And, and when I first did a cabaret performance, it was at Danny's Skylight Room, which is no longer. And I was so nervous that the first night there were two little steps to walk up on this, to get to this tiny stage and um, and my legs were shaking. I thought, oh my God, am I gonna fall down these steps? 
and the New York Times, Stephen Holden was there that night to review me. And in the beginning, I never, I never talked, I never said anything. I couldn't. I was just, I just couldn't. And in fact, Variety wrote a review that was a wonderful review. And the only criticism was that I didn't say anything. <laughs> I didn't. So I eventually realized I, I had to talk. So <laughs> then I started figuring out ways to do it. And it was simply by um, It all started with the songs I want to sing, and then what kind of a thread can I pull to thread these things together? And so that's what I did. That's what I did. And the other one that I have in mind is because I, I have realized that the songs that I sing that I'm drawn to absolutely reflect experiences in my life absolutely and um so the this new thing i have in mind is is based on that with particular things uh, influences when i was little my father played records for me of frank sinatra ella fitzgerald ray charles Stephen E. B. Gourmet, and um, so when I was about say nine years old, and the family would be driving in the car, I would sing to myself, sitting in the back seat. Just I would sing entire albums from beginning to end with all the key changes from one song into the next. So imagine I'm singing, you know, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. <laughs> set him up Joe you know? <laughs> um, um, and I, I mean I when I think of it now I think it's funny but of course I heard that music uh, I remember once when I was older teenager I woke myself up singing hard-hearted Hannah at the top of my lungs in my sleep <laughs> from the Ella Fitzgerald's recording <laughs> um so, well, there, there are other things, but that's the trick. To me, it's what I want to sing. That's what matters. That's what matters. But it's a reality to have to hang it together somehow. Um, the very first time I sang publicly in Warren was at a, a fair. It was a kind of a country fair, and I'd been asked to sing there. And... So I went up and with my guitar and I was singing. <clears throat> um, and there had, they had just finished the chicken judging contest. And the, <laughs> the chickens were in cages on the stage behind me, <laughs> stacked on top of each other. And every time I hit a high note, they'd start crowing. And <laughs> so it's things like that that I'm remembering that I will talk about in this new performance I want to do about, you know, really what my life has been like for the most part. But, but, and as an excuse to sing what I want to sing. <laughs> that sounds like a wonderful show. 
Oh, thank you. I, I, I ran the idea by a few friends to say, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to assume that somebody would be interested in me for this to work. And I said, oh, yes, do go ahead. So, so I, I don't want to keep you for uh, too long, but I would love to, I'd love to talk about uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona, which you oh, did yes. And um, that featured uh, Larry Kurt and also an actor I love, uh, Phil Leeds. So I'd love to ask you about them. Oh, yes, sure. Um, yeah, I, I joined them. They had been on tour for a while. I don't know how long. Um, I auditioned for it for Joseph Papp. Um, and I replaced Dr. Channing, who'd been doing it. Um, and Larry was, was still in it then. And, and um, Phil, and it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. I'm thinking in particular because I had done Julia's speech um, in class. It was the first time I'd, I'd attempted Shakespeare. And there was no criticism, which was wild, you know, none. Um, and then Joseph Papp, when I auditioned for him, he said, no, 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 no. He said, um, I, and I did that, um, you know, the last line, now kiss, embrace, contend, do what you will. And she surrenders to it. And he said, no, do it like a famous actress playing a love game. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't get it at all. I don't know. I still don't. I don't know what the hell that means, you know, but... <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, uh, there's a picture that I found It's one of the things, there's this other project Joe Batista is putting together for me. And there's a picture of Larry and I and, and two gentlemen. Yeah. But that year I did two national tours in one year. There's two gentlemen and the other was, uh, finishing touches. So I was on the road nine months out of that year. That was tough. That was tough. And I had used to think that doing musicals are, are much easier and plays, you know, plays are more demanding. No, you've got to live like a nun when you're doing a musical. <laughs> Truly you do, because it's a physical act. Singing is a physical act. And if you're tired, it's difficult. So that was one of the things that I learned from that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd also love to talk about the um the out of town tryout you did of Broadway with Gilda Radner. Oh yes, 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 yes. Well, um, Gilda was brilliant in the role, brilliant, and completely unique as the ingenue. Um, this play, the it was I think in nineteen twenty seven, and. She was doing a kind of a send up of what that ingenue would be, but in the most beautiful, innocent, I mean, she, I, I can't even put it into words. And then something happened, I don't know what. When we moved into the theater from the rehearsal hall, her performance changed completely. Oh. And not for, the, not for the better. And I don't know what happened. I don't know who did what that contributed to this. I don't know. So when 
we opened and the New York Times reviewed it, the reviews were bad for her. And she was playing the lead. I was playing a featured role. It was fun. Pearl, who was a Corrine from the spy bootleggers gang. Um, and I, I kill Chris Sarandon at the end. I say, turn around rat. And I bring out a gun with a silencer on it and shoot him. <laughs> so that was a fun role. I was there as the spy, a spying Corrine. And uh, so what they did uh, at the, uh, uh, the Red Lion Inn in Stockbridge, they bought, they removed all of the New York Times newspapers from the town and from the Red Lion Inn so Gilda wouldn't see them. Wow. Yeah. So uh, then it went on to a Broadway production. And so Terry Garr replaced Gilda. And um, it should have continued. It really should have continued. I don't know. I never saw the reviews from uh, the out of town trials because I didn't read them then. But uh, I don't know why it closed. It shouldn't have. It really shouldn't have. Yeah. And I, well, there were big problems, I know, conceptually from the very beginning that I certainly had to struggle with. Even if you're doing something that's very stylized, like the period movies of that time about speakeasies and prohibition and gangster movies that kind of thing. even if it's very stylish it still has to have some root in humanity in the performances the actors have to find that the style is something laid on top so if you start out with trying to play a style it's like trying to play a comment on a comment then it's it's empty and i think it was suffering a lot from that a lot to me, because I've been so highly trained that I knew what a pitfall that was. And I had to struggle to survive it all the time. And apparently I did, thank God, but not everybody did in the cast, unfortunately. Yeah. And was George Abbott himself around a lot? No, not then, no. Oh. No, but I auditioned for him for I think this might have been for the musical of Twelfth Night. And it was uh, in a Broadway theater and he was sitting in the audience uh, with somebody, maybe the casting director, I don't know who, uh, for me to sing. And I sang and I heard him say, is she anybody? <laughs> um, I never had a call back on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he just didn't seem to have any sense that, he, that what he was saying could be heard so well. <laughs> so, the, so the last thing I'd love to ask you about, because it's sort of continuing on today, is this musical Crosstown Bus? Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. Ah. Crosstown Bus took place... I should really send you a copy of it, Charles, because I have a copy of uh, just a staged concert version we did of it some years ago. But so the music is all there because it's wonderful stuff. It takes place 
on, uh, you know, I don't recall if it's a 24-hour or 72-hour period on the 72nd Street Crosstown bus in New York City. And it's mostly sung. Um, and so everyone on the bus, as we're riding in a bus and we have our own thoughts and we've just come from someplace or we're just going or something's bothering us or we're really happy about something. So the, the characters are singing what's going through their minds, including what they're thinking about somebody sitting across from them or whatever. And what's really wonderful is each character has their own kind of music. For instance, one of them is a, is a tourist from Texas and his song is a country Western song. Um, and um, see what else there's a there's a an old lady who sings and she sings a very old-fashioned flowery little ballad and one of the most beautiful lyrics I love about it is uh, time for me to bloom said the violet but she's singing in a high soprano guess that I'm as purple as I'll ever get which I love Time to open to the sky, maybe see a butterfly. Time for me to bloom, said the violet. And she's just singing in her mind to herself. There's another one who has just come. She's carrying a, a dress in a, in a garment bag. And she's just come from her job. And she's wanted a raise. And the, the boss will not give her a raise, the woman she's working for. And the name of her song is so what if she gives me a tuna fish sandwich? That's her song. <laughs> and, and so it's that kind of thing. And it's, it's just wonderful, wonderful music. Um, in fact, I don't know if you've heard it, but the same composer, Bruce Dietrich, he wrote, uh, see, this song is for me that I recorded. That's just a beautiful song. So the character I played I played two, but one of them was uh, a woman. She looks very elegant, hat, lovely shopping bag. Well, it starts though with an opera singer who has just come from a rehearsal and she's very angry about the tempo that the, the teacher is telling her this is wrong or something. And, and, and so she sings a, a Schubert, uh, no Schumann, a Schumann song um, in German, of course, that's about a longing for home. It's a ballad. Then my character, who's hanging on a strap near us, starts singing too. And my song was uh, the the character is a woman who used to live in town, and she's passing by where she used to live and where she still had her children. And apparently, there's been an end of the marriage, so it's a very sad thing. But hers is it's a crowded town, it's a crowded day, and I've been through crowds in my mind. And I've something the town and I've, I've crossed the town and I've made the day. Uh, and then she sees where she used to live. So then, then they sing together. And Bruce wrote, so the Schumann song begins again. And my character sings my song again, but it's in counterpoint to the Schumann. It's just, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so you, you get the sense of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you get the sense of it. And there's another one, in fact, my dear friend, Hal Robinson, wonderful actor and singer, he was in it. And he sang 
shall we gather at the river? He's playing a, a preacher. And the woman, the elderly woman dies on the bus later. And so there's kind of, that's dealt with. And Hal was a monk at one time and really is very spiritual. So it, it was very, very special, very special. And Joe Batista, he's only heard me talk about it. He hasn't heard it yet. But I think he's going to do something with it. I really do. And he's a wonderful musician himself. So I know he'll do a beautiful, beautiful job. Yeah. And, and Stuart Ostra wanted to do it. He it was done at the um, a music, music theater lab he had in Cambridge. And he wanted to go on and produce it. And so did Dan Crawford in England, but Bruce insisted on directing it himself and nobody would allow that. So it, it died and then Bruce died from uh, cancer, unfortunately. Um, so that's Crosstown Bus, but it really deserves to be heard. Yeah. Yes. And so um, to take us up to the present day, what has this uh, quarantine been like for you as an artist and as a person? Oh, solitary confinement. It's awful. Really, it's really, it's especially, I don't know why, maybe this new wave that we're all dealing with. Oh, God. That's been very, very difficult very different and it's so sad the broadway shows that have closed yeah off oh, they're probably even more today i don't know i haven't read the times today yet no it's been very very difficult very difficult um, yeah. yeah for everybody yeah yeah and so the uh, the last question i'd love to ask you is with such a legendary career in the theater, what <laughs> advice would you give to somebody just starting out? Well, what comes to my mind immediately is something that I said to uh, a student I had. No, she wasn't a student, right? It was her mother was a, a, a friend of, of a friend of mine. And she was considering not going back to college because she wanted to be in the theater. And so I said, okay, this is what she has to know. Because she knew not, and she had a friend who wanted to do the same thing. That when you send a, a photo and resume to an agent's office, it's going to go right in the garbage. They're never going to see it. They're never even going to open it. It's trying to, you know, open your eyes to some reality here. You have to understand what you're getting into. And consequently, this girl and her friend decided, no, to finish school. They went back to college. They finished I said, you can perform in community theater. You can perform. You don't have to do this. And you, you should finish school because you're going to have to have a way to support yourself. Uh, so just starting out, I would say try to go to the best teachers you can because there are a lot of bad teachers out there because it's just like apparently some... Uh, Psychotherapists don't have to have a license of any kind. They can just call themselves therapists and put up a shingle and that's it. Because the, the law does not feel that they are qualified to judge who is qualified and who isn't. And it's the same with, uh, with teachers in, in our profession. And it's a given when you go to a teacher that you have to turn yourself over and trust that they know a lot more than you do and that they're going to teach you things you just it's a given 
but you've got to follow your guts too. Yeah. And audit the classes. That's one good thing about HD Studio. You can audit the classes and see, and just trust your guts. And if it doesn't feel good, then don't. Because, oh, unfortunately, there are a lot, there's lots of awful stuff going on with people who work in casting offices and things who are charge a fortune for seminars and classes and, and students go and pay a lot of money hoping they're going to get an audition from it. Let's not even talk about what training is involved, what you're going to learn. But that's a real big scam to watch out for. Yeah. And including some schools I won't even mention that are really doing it. They're, it's, it's heartbreaking to me. These kids that get, get money from their grandmothers to pay and they have fantasies of becoming stars. They have no idea what this is really about. So that's very, very important to be aware of and watch out for. Yeah. And the rest of it, I don't know. You don't. Probably the biggest lesson would be if you go into an audition and you're trying to be what they want, you don't even know what they want. They often don't. You, know? you don't even know. So all you can do is go by your own lights. And that's, that's the toughest thing to learn, I think. The toughest. You do what you do. They hire you, they don't. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been <laughs> an, an honor to talk to you. Well, it's an honor to be interviewed by you, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time for the first part of my celebration of the 50th anniversary of Greece and the release of the new book, Greece, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, an oral history of the original production, featuring the show's original director, Tom Moore. As one of Broadway's most successful directors, Tom Moore was Tony-nominated for his work on Night Mother, which he also spearheaded on screen, and Over Here. His other Broadway credits include Moon Over Buffalo, Once in a Lifetime, Frankenstein, Division Street, and the Octet Bridge Club. Off-Broadway, he directed Welcome to Andromeda. He has also been nominated for Emmys for his work on L.A. Law, E.R., and Mad About You, and his other TV directing credits include 30-something, Sybil, Picket Fences, and Gilmore Girls. So make sure to come back next time for that, and thanks for listening. <laughs>